Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now from Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found, to have been, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me, and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, 
you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted humbled, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Here is what the words, these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed round his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. Let's pray. Father, may your, kingdom, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May this prayer never be far from our lips. We will not bow before Belshazzar, but only before one Lord, our Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, high school. Off you go then. These guys are uh, going to look at the same passage that we're looking at together. So it'll be sort of fun to see uh, what they come up with as they read these remar this remarkable story and apply it to, to lives. We are told uh, often enough to uh, follow our hearts, to follow your heart. And in the absence of any God who governs lives or any true meta-narrative, any true story that dictates how we ought to live, follow your heart seems as good, as good advice as any. You might say, if it's good enough for Hollywood, it's good enough for me. Uh, but it's not hard to see how follow your heart can often lead to a hedonism. I mean, why live for pain when you can live for pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence where the most important thing is to enjoy yourself. Now, those who have power are especially tempted by such a mode of living because they can afford it. They can pay for it. And they can arrange things so that others serve them. Case in point, Belshazzar. 
Look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 5 on page 5 of your orders of service. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. It's a wine fest, and it, I take it, is debauched in some form. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines might drink from them, the goblets from the temple. And when a man like Belshazzar orders such a thing, it happens, verse 3. So they brought in the gold goblets that have been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And yet, pretty quickly, Belshazzar's party is rudely interrupted by a finger, fingers appearing. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand, I'd love to know the size of them. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched as the hand, as it wrote, Verse 6, he turned pale and was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. In the original language, there's a suggestion that he's peeing his pants. And so was our phrase born, the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall. Which here is the finger of God rudely interrupting our pleasures. Welcome, by the way, to the book of Daniel. Welcome to our series. Welcome to the human condition. Welcome to an exploration of human power, unchecked. Welcome to living well in light of the promise of Christ's kingdom come. I believe that God gave us these stories to work out how to live. In fact, how to worship God in a complex world. How to do Mondays in Babylon. He gave us these stories to show us a power that is higher than the ones we tend to fear and a power that is deeper than the ones we tend to admire. So where are we? Well, we're in Sydney, uh, but we're in Babylon, uh, which is code in the Bible for a, a world sort of hostile to God, unaligned with the will of God. When are we? Well, we're 2019, but the book is set here in the 6th century before Jesus Christ. How do you live here? Well, that's what the series is about, um, and I've made this clear. You are the educated, intelligent crowd, and you're amazing on Mondays. I've been saying that. Um, so how do you do Mondays in Babylon well? Remember, we've been saying through the series that Daniel and his friends outlive, outlast, outplay the evil, its ultimate survivor. Daniel, Belshazzar here, and next week, Darius, get, they all get voted off the island. And, and uh, the ones who are faithful to God remain standing in Babylon. Remember what, that quote from Hugh Latimer, killed for his uh, statement of truth as an Anglican bishop? <laughs> Hugh Latimer said, The drop of rain maketh a hole in the stone, not by violence, but by oft falling. So the message is, stay there, one foot in front of the, the other with faith. Just don't get bumped off the course. That's sort of what Daniel is saying, as well as the book of Revelation. Jesus said, the one who stands firm to the end, that one, said Jesus will be saved. And you could argue that Daniel has that application. 
So bear in mind the structure of the book, which you can see at the bottom of page 7. Daniel 5 corresponds to last week. Daniel 4, what happens if you stand against the, the kingdom of God? And uh, both, both of these uh, stories, last week and this week, have two kings that were brought low, even though Nebuchadnezzar learned from his arrogance. So three questions this morning uh, that are in your outline on page 8. What is this writing? I want to tell the story. Uh, what uh, writing then is on the wall? Uh, what, what is the interpretation of this story? And what about the gospel? What's the gospel writing? I want to talk about Jesus at the end. What is this writing? Well, first, there's a king. Although it's highly likely from historical records that Belshazzar was indeed a crown prince in Babylon. He was, in fact, the eldest son of Nabonidus, uh, who was a successor to Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar was probably neither a king but a crown prince, and probably not the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but rather the son of his successor. But here in this text, he's claiming king and claiming Nebuchadnezzar as father in order to claim rightful rule in the city in which he is ruling. Belshazzar was regent for his father while his father had a prolonged absence from the city, and that's why he's being called a king. And Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is featured in our text today, in verses 18 to 21, and basically it's, you should have learned from him. You only learned half the story, you learned the arrogant half. You didn't learn the lifting part. Now, we do not know much more about Belshazzar than what was said here, but no doubt, as we learned last week, his life was complex. Can't be summed up necessarily in one story, but here in this story, he's the party guy. And the writing was on the wall for him. Jesus said of a person who was rich towards self, but not rich towards God, Jesus said, tonight your soul will be required of you. That could apply to Belshazzar. That's the king. What about the banquet? It's lavish. It's flowing with wine. People presumably are tanked. Who's there? Verse 1, his nobles, his wives, his concubines. No doubt with a mixture of pleasure of being invited into the circle and a little fear of an ancient Near Eastern king. Notice there are concubines there. So he can, and indeed does, exploit women for his glory. It is an unrestrained party. But more than that, it's a challenge to Yahweh, to God. The goblets. <laughs> Did you notice the goblets? Verse 2, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, in the sacking of Jerusalem some decades before, that sacking had been ordered by God for Judah's sins. And some artifacts were brought in from Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem and carried to Iraq, that's where they effectively are, in ancient Mesopotamia. Nebuchadnezzar had ripped them from the temple in Jerusalem and taken to the temple of his gods. You know that from Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. The book starts with these goblets. Now, it's not like Belshazzar was just sort of found at the nearest receptacle. It's like, you know, you know at a party, you run out of glasses, and so you go looking for fresh ones in another drawer. That's not what's happening here. He's trashing God. It's a, it's a piece of communication. It's a pretty powerful one, too. 
it'd be like this, the best illustration I've heard, it'd be like saying, I hate God and I hate the Bible, and then you start to tear apart the Bible for the purposes of using it for toilet paper. You know, and then putting a photo of that on YouTube and saying, this is me, this is what I think of God. It's the same thing, goblets for a, a, a drunken party, Bible as toilet paper. Or maybe covering a cross with excrement. Now, I'm not here to make comments about freedom of expression, freedom of art, but Felsh's is not into art. This is not about art. This is about mocking God who appears to him to be silent. Like he can do this stuff and get away with it because nothing ever happens. Of course, it's a moment-defining sort of blasphemy. But we discover God is not silent. He appears as fingers. He appears and speaks with writing. He interrupts the alcohol fest. And he writes something decisive. Um, but they don't know what it means in the moment. It's miraculous. There's no doubt about that. It's unusual. But then it's interpreted by Daniel. It's going to be important for later. You can see it in verse 5. Suddenly, fingers of a human hand appeared wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. So specific. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking, peeing his pants. And the writing on the wall is, uh, literally, in another language, mene, mene, tekel, parson, up, person. Now, no one know, knows what it uh, means, at least not then. <laughs> Uh, so the king does what kings do. He offers bribes, rewards in verse 7. The one who can read it and tell me what it means will be clothed, gold chain, made third highest in the ruler of the kingdom. That's what despots do. They use what they have to reward people who give them the information they want. So he thinks he can buy his way forward. But verse 8 and 9, they, the wise men came in, this sort of religious civil class, they couldn't read the writing, it's in another language, and they couldn't tell the king what it meant. And I like to think that the story of Daniel has unfolded over a number of decades, and they just sort of know that you can't pull the wool over the king's eyes. You can't go, oh, that dream's about anxiety, sir. It's about anxiety. Yeah. Okay, thank you. They know they can't do that. So the king became more terrified, his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. What's interesting is that it's the queen who brings sense. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, she came into the banquet hall. Don't be alarmed. There's a man in your kingdom. He's got a keen mind. He's got knowledge. He's got understanding. He's intelligent. Together with the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Don't you like people who can solve problems? She says, call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. She's the door to understanding this news, this gospel for Belshazzar. And the gospel to Belshazzar is mene, mene, tekel, uh, parson. And here's what the words mean. Mene means uh, numbered, that's what the word means. And the interpretation is that God has numbered Belshazzar, the days of your reign, and brought it to an end. And if you remember the histo map that I provided two weeks ago, you can actually see it at the tail end 
of a green section called the Chaldeans. You can't see this. I can't see it. Really, I can't. <laughs> Belshazzar defeated by Cyrus, ended the Chaldean reign. Right here, little wedge down the bottom here. I'll show you that later if you like. Tekel means weighed. Uh, you've been weighed. God has weighed you in the scales. And you've been found wanting. God has got a set of whales, weighs uh, Belshazzar. And he's put you in the, 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 the weights. And you've been found to have spiritual flab. Fat with arrogance and hardness of heart. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting and perish. Related to Upasan or, or, or uh, also a, uh, a play on words with the word Persian. But perish means divided. Uh, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the party's over. I know what your heart is really like. Belshazzar, and you're out the door tonight. God has seen what you've done. More than that, he sees your heart. Maybe that's the gospel. Um, your days are numbered, uh, and you're going to be judged. But what's interesting here is um, that Nebuchadnezzar says, he interprets it against the story of Nebuchadnezzar that we looked at last week. You didn't learn from that story last week. You didn't learn from Nebuchadnezzar. You should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar. You only picked up half the story. You picked up the, the arrogant half. But Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and then lifted up and restored. That's why he says in verse 18, Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those, that sort of worship will be applied to Jesus, not with dread and fear, but with joy in the book of Revelation. But then you get this um, classic description of a person in power without balances or checks. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put them to death. You know? Long live Stalin. <laughs> Boom. Those you wanted to spare, he spared. Okay, he can come out now. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, negative, he humbled. But verse 20, when his heart became arrogant, it's not just his actions. When his heart became arrogant, because it's the heart that leads to actions, but who can see the heart? When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, then he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped from his glory. That's Nebuchadnezzar. St. Augustine said it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. In fact, if you want to know the heartbeat of God, then discover humility because of what it means to be God is to be humble. That's what it means, Philippians chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar learnt, driven mad, but lifted up. But you, in verse 22, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this. Look at verse 22 and 23. And I want, to, want you to read these words with me. I'll read them fairly slowly. But I want you to read them soberly. And perhaps even for yourself. Like feel the weight of them. But you, his son, you've not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you and you drank wine from them. 
You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or understand. They're just mute. But, says Daniel to you and to me, you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. What a beautiful line. What a sobering line to Belshazzar. He holds in his hands your life. He holds in his hands all your ways. Therefore, pride will always be inappropriate. Not if there's a God who's higher than any powers you fear or deeper than any powers you admire. John Ruskin, an art critic of the 19th century, said, in general, pride is the bottom of all great mistakes. So what is the writing on the wall in this circumstance? Well, the writing on the wall is a universal phrase in the English. You know, when they say the writing is on the wall, they, they mean something like, we now know the future, it's all clear, it's going to happen. Uh, Julius Caesar said, "Alay, yakta est, the die is cast, it's going to happen. Everyone knows what's coming, the end is around the corner, the writing is on the wall. You could ask, when was the writing on the wall for the Wallabies? I'll leave that with you to decide. Sorry if you're sore about that. I read, I read this week <laughs> in one opinion piece that the writing is on the wall for Anglicans. Everyone will leave. The writing's on the wall. Which I find somewhat ironic uh, um, uh, in, in the case this week. Um, but, you know, the writing's on the wall was, was said uh, for Anglicans. Have a read of my report if you'd like some thoughts on that. But I take it there's an opportunity here in this story. Uh, Dale Ralph Davies wrote in his commentary, he wrote, whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, smashing all his props and wasting his idols, it is a favourable moment indeed, if he will but see it. There's a favourable moment here in this story. So three things you can say. Number one, don't think you can trash God. God sees your attitude to him. He knows when you are taking him for granted. He knows when you ignore him. He sees the heart and he judges the heart, which, by the way, is good news because he won't get it wrong. Every other judge in the world can only see by what they hear uh, and touch. But God can see in you, through you. That's sobering news as well. He really knows you like you don't know you. That's the claim of Scripture. He knows when you are using your resources for your own pleasure, when you are telling Him what is right and what is wrong. Don't, you think, don't think you can trash Him. And don't think also you can trash others. It's hard to know whether the participants of the party are willing participants, but there are concubines there. Wives, and not the queen, but wives who may fear the king. There's just wrong stuff happening here. Nobles who perhaps are bullied into the party, driven as one is with power, drawn to but repulsed by. They could live and become wealthy or be killed in a heartbeat. Who knows? The queen is the sensible one here. She hears the voices of the king and the nobles came into the banquet hall. Verse 10, the implication is she's not at the party. She somehow knows the path to the gospel, the news that God has 
for Nebuchadnezzar. She's a door for Belshazzar. And I should ask you the question, who is your queen? Who's the queen for you? The person who'll come in uh, to your party and show you the way forward and open a door for you. Good question, isn't it? Who is your queen? I want one. Don't think also you can trash yourself, because in the end, Belshazzar is trashing himself. His exaltation of self might have felt good, but like too much alcohol, it'll get you in the end. Uh, you know, a hangover will be okay. Uh, this is him being slain. By the way, there are, of course, many ways to be arrogant, and irreligious behavior might be one way, it's described here, sort of parting with toasts to the gods of pleasure and power. But I love that first reading that Jeremy read to us a moment ago. Jesus reserved his ire for religious arrogance. In Matthew 23, Jesus critiques the religious leaders who make a show of their righteousness. That's not just irreligion, but religion that can make a person proud. Everything they do is done for men to see. They like the places of honor. They like to be greeted, you know, with titles. In the end, Jesus says, um, he says, uh, you're not to be called rabbi because you've actually got only one rabbi. You're all brothers and don't call anyone father because you've got one father and he's in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors. You've got one instructor, the Messiah. And you could probably add here, you know, don't, don't believe anybody truly is a king because you've only got one king. But then Jesus tells you what that king is like. Verse 11, the greatest among you, and that's God himself, will become your servant. He went to the cross. For anyone who exalts themselves, Belshazzar, will be humbled. But the one who humbles themselves, Jesus Christ, will be lifted up. What do you think the resurrection is? But a lifting up. So thirdly and finally, what is the gospel writing being said here? Belshazzar shows us one gospel, uh, a true one. Namely, that God sees the heart, God judges the heart, and that's news. Uh, and it's sobering, and it might be new for some of you. It, the Apostle Paul actually says that God judging is still the gospel. In Romans chapter 2, verse 16, he says, All this will take place on the day when God judges men's secrets, when God judges women's secrets, through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So this is true news that God judges hearts. But Belshazzar doesn't learn this. Verse 29, he lavishes the bribe, the reward on Daniel, even though Daniel has said, I don't want it, you can keep it all. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62, and we'll meet him next week. He seems to follow the pattern. But you'll notice that Daniel says, no, 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 I don't want the gifts. You know, in a sea of like, glug, 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 he's like, no, 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 no. The truth is that Jesus, of course, is the true and better Daniel. And Jesus declares to us the true and better gospel. Namely, that Jesus now gives life. Jesus saves lives. The news is saving grace, not a judgment from God. This is the true and fuller gospel. Notice that this gospel is decisive. You are loved. You are forgiven. You have hope. 
It is miraculous. It comes by a death and a resurrection from the dead. That's surely mysterious. That's surely miraculous. But it is also interpreted by those who know Jesus. Who is your queen? Who is your Daniel to explain to you these mysteries? That through Jesus Christ, we have not been weighed in the scales and found wanting, but rather through the saving work of Jesus Christ, we have been weighed in the scales and found wanted, loved, despite the spiritual flab and the hardness of heart. That this king, not Belshazzar, this king, the Messiah Jesus Christ, does not have a party for himself and invite only the inner circle. Rather, he says, the kingdom of God is like a a banquet. And at the table are the poor, the oppressed, the blind, and the lame. People like you, people like me, sinners who are saved, spiritual lepers who are healed. Jesus went to the cross, (laughs) Not, not, not to a party. He drank the wrath of God, not more wine. This is the true and reigning king, the true and better king, and the true and better story. It is decisive what Jesus chose to do when he went to the cross, and miraculous that he rose again from the dead. And interpreted, it means that we can live a better life than the one we're currently living in Babylon, Mondays in Babylon. That's why the writer of the hymn we're about to sing says something like this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, he died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. I pour contempt on it. Jesus will do that for you. And that's why we can say with confidence that we've been weighed in the scales and instead of being found wanting, which would be the natural uh, conclusion of the weighing of our lives, instead, because of the grace of God, we've been found wanted, loved, saved, forgiven. And while Belshazzar's kingdom was overthrown in a night, slain and forgotten, really, save this story, Jesus is the king who's raised and is reigning now. I want to leave you with a, a, um, a quote from a poem from Matthew Bridges in 1851 that became a famous hymn. I want to leave you with these words as a challenge. Listen to these words. And then we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together on page 9, which seems apt to do. Listen to these words, Matthew Bridges. Crown him, the Lord of years, the potentate of time, the only powerful one, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail through all eternity. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.